0: Well, again, if you haven't met m- before, uh, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor. And no, I don't always carry these around, in case you're wondering. Any guesses what this is, actually? any Like we're in Byron Center. It's kind of farmy still. Like any guesses what this actually is? A yoke. Wow, that was quick. You have some farmer background. <laughs> Apparently, she's like, yoke, duh, idiot. Of course that's what it is. What else would this wooden thing with leather straps be? You're right, it is yoke. Uh, it's funny because uh, this was actually borrowed from a friend who goes here. And this is around 1800s era, not exactly sure uh, what era. And he had, admittedly, had to show me how you even use something like this. I had no idea. Uh, This actually hooked up to the back. So if you think about a typical horse setup, like for it's normally a bridle thing, and they've got the saddle and all that. This is actually something that would hook onto the back. There'd be two horses here, and this little strap, this little hook that I'm holding would hook onto... Uh, either a plow or a, some kind of a wagon that would go behind the actual horses. So the yoke would actually be these leather straps hooked on to the back. Now, I have just exhausted all of my agricultural knowledge in front of you. That's all I know about it. Um, so I'm going to set it back down. We're going to come back to it later. And I basically asked uh, Ron, some of you guys know Ron, I said, could you help me figure out how to use, like how this would actually be used? I do not want to embarrass myself. So literally, that's all I know about it. But it's funny because I was thinking about that. and what, is, what does a yoke do? Like ultimately a yoke keeps the horses or the oxen or cattle or small misbehaved children in line so that they can actually, that was supposed to be a joke, now it's weird in context, but, uh, but keeps them in line to move forward and, and literally blaze the path, literally to live and to set out the trajectory you want them to do. So whether you're plowing a field or doing something like that, What's funny is, as an oldest child, I hated rules, and I hated yokes, I hated anything that would keep me in line with what my parents wanted to do. They were what I would, des- they described me as an antagonist. Anyone have kids like this? You're like, they're just constantly, okay, at least one of you, uh, I constantly trying, and they're all in center kids right now, but like... <laughs> making it crazy but to me I was just that was the way I was wired I had three younger siblings I'm married to an oldest child Lindsay who also have some of these antagonistic streaks in her possibly but I constantly was trying to get them in trouble constantly trying to figure out how do my how do I get my brothers and sisters to break the rules that was really my goal and if you're good you don't get in trouble for that you just figure out a way to get them to do what you want but you don't get in trouble. Uh, to me, it became like something that happened consistently throughout middle school and high school. Anything that felt like a yoke on me, I was like, I do not want to do that. I'm going to, to as safely rebel as possible. And that was kind of part of my growing up. In the words of the Disney theologian, Elsa, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. All right? That was my, that was my thing. I was going to sing it, but I'm not going to sing it. That was my thing. I really loved the feeling of, of freedom. Like I left high school and instead of going to college, kind of the traditional path all my siblings went, I was like, I want to go to New Zealand and surf for a year. And so that's what I did. I just spent a year across the ocean and barely saw my family. That was like, to me, a key to a full life. But what's interesting, and I think we have the tendency, all of us to feel that way deep down, like I can't believe I'm burdened with this responsibility. Maybe it's parenting or being in the same job or being tied to a paycheck or or issues at home or at work or in your family. But what if the key to a full life is not the absence of a yoke, but a better yoke? What if the key to the life that you want and the life God wants to give us is not actually removing all of the, the, the chains or removing all of the rules or removing all of the obedience or the yokes that, that actually following Jesus takes? What if we just need a better one? What if there's actually an invitation on the table for us that so many of us live and we don't ever pick up, we don't ever take? What if there's a life that is a step greater and there's a more that the Holy Spirit wants to give you that you haven't yet experienced only because we haven't seen it correctly? This is one of the devastating effects of sin. This is this, this gap, this chasm that's been created between God and his perfect creation. We, we saw all through January, walk through how God created us in his design. We sang this earlier too, like Christ in us, the hope of glory, this, this imago day, this image of God that was working in, in the world and in every single human person. And then Adam's, Adam and Eve's independent decision to step away from God's authority and away from his ruler, like him being their ruler and him being their Lord into their own world, into their own wisdom, into their own life, brings this devastating, this havoc, this chaos, this, this sin into the picture. And we talked about how the effects of sin in our lives is, is widespread. Sometimes it looks like idolatry. Sometimes that looks like broken relationships in family systems. And last week we talked about the need for forgiveness and reconciliation because this, the devastating effects of sin are so great when I think about sin, I think about this this breaking of trust, this breaking of relationship between God and his people. Ultimately, sin, if you think about it, if you try to handle it on your own, if you try to take on that cosmic weight on your own, that burden is too great for any of us to bear. And maybe you felt that. Maybe you grew up in a system or a religious environment in which the, the onus was on you to manage your sin and not to be too bad of a person. And that was that in your mind. That's salvation was was simply that. But even that understanding is a yoke that is too great for any of us to bear. See, very early on in the scripture story, and we've walked through some of these stories, uh, God gives the the Israelite people, His chosen nation, a set of sacrificial systems and laws. He provides a way as incomplete as it was for them to atone and make right the sin that they struggled with in their own lives but also in their community but really all the law ends up doing is becoming a system a religion of sin management it didn't ultimately deal with the problem it pointed to something greater but it didn't deal necessarily with the problem maybe give give you a couple examples If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to two places and we're going to land in the third place. The first place I want to take you is Genesis 17, verse 10. Right in the very beginning, Abram sets up this covenant, this divine promise with, with his creator, with God himself, with the leader of Israel. And they have this encounter between him and God, and this blessing occurs. But towards the end, Genesis 17, verse 10, here is what happens. Then God said to Abram, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. And here's the deal. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. The law this promise you're to keep. Every male among you must be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, we're going go to go somewhere else, but right away in the very beginning of the story, God is setting apart a law, a system, a, 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 a covenant agreement, which is what's happening here between himself and his people, but it's on the exterior. Did you catch this? Do I need to say more? Okay, like <laughs> it's on the exterior of these people that are undergoing this ritual. Let me take you again to Deuteronomy six. We're going to skip over to the next next section. We see this Deuteronomy six. Uh, God gives him the law. The Hebrew word for this is a shema, and in verse. 7 and 8 here's what we read He says these commandments I give you are to be on your hearts impress them on your children talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road when you lie down and when you get up tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads write them on the doorframes of your houses and on your gates So again it's external right it's law It's talking about the law in your exterior of your house. It's talking about it with good mornings and good nights. It's talking about it literally as a thing you would wear on your body. I mean, you can look back and find uh, pictures and images of what this would have looked like in the priestly system. Here's kind of a modern example of what is called a phylactery. Literally this little container in which it would contain like, I don't know, 0.8 font to capture all the law, the Shema in your body, like on your body. It's something that modern some modern Jewish groups still do to this day. Now that's all great information. You're like, great. I'm impressed that you know that about the Old Testament. Good for you. But look what happens. We're going to go to Matthew 11 here. That's where we're going to land for the morning. Matthew 11. What happens is Jesus arrives on the scene. God incarnate, God with flesh, God with skin and bones on. He moves into our space and he takes on the form of humanity, and he starts to teach. And what he teaches really offends almost every single religious group who was in, around him at the, in the time. Anytime he would speak, there would be people who loved it, really liked it, and there were other people who did not like it and really hated it. I mean, really, you can go to the very first couple chapters of Mark. He's teaching, and in Mark, I think, 3, uh, it immediately begins with, or the chapter ends rather with, and they began to conspire how to kill Jesus. It's like, man, give the guy a break. He's three chapters in. <laughs> like, what did he say that was so radical? And what we're about to get into is what he says. The passage we're about to read in Matthew 11 is the only only gospel in which these words are found Matthew's writing to this heavily Jewish audience. They would have understood the law. They would have possibly warned the law in a way that we just saw. The Jewish audience would have been under heavy Roman taxation. They knew what a yoke felt like. They knew pressure. And what had happened is over time, the law had gotten bigger, not smaller. The law that was designed to keep God and man in relationship became almost an idol, a religion unto itself. Pharisees who are kind of leading religious elite added over 600 laws to an existing law. And it was expected if you were a good Jewish person, if you feared God, you would follow all of these to a T, which I can barely follow. I can't even drive the speed limit, okay? Like, don't give me 613 laws. Like, there's no way. I, I see it. Again, I got my first speeding ticket about a month ago. I was like, he asked me, like, did you know what you're doing? I said, I have no idea. I don't know why you pulled me over. He's like, you were going Over, that's all I'll say, but you were going a little fast, John. You were late and you were over. So there was this incredible religious expectation on Jewish people, 600 laws just to stay in right relationship with God. And what Jesus said over and over again is his concern was so much more about the heart than about the law. It frustrated people. And it actually created a, a conspiracy theories over and over again that, who, about who he was and how to kill him because he was so much about the heart. Listen to, to wor- the words of God, the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 11, 28. He's talking about true religion. He says, come to me. We read this earlier. All who are weary and burdened and I will give you what? I'd be reading that as a, as a Jewish rabbi and think, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you some law. Like I'll give you a better law. That's what I'm going to give you. That's not what Jesus gives. He says, I will give you rest. And what's he say next? Take my yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find what? There's a word again. Rest for your soul's. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, this is what absolutely drove religious people insane about Jesus. Insane. Because he did not come and affirm, look at all these laws. Look at all the exterior ways that you are following God. That's not what happens. What happens is Jesus comes and he says, repent, turn your life, be baptized, give your heart to me, and I will change you, and it absolutely drove people insane. It was so catching to the people who are burdened and, and weary and, and hurting, and it was so off-putting to the people who thought they had their life together, who were really, really good at managing their sin, but that's not the gospel. <laughs> the good news is that you no longer have to manage sin. Jesus has come to end the power and the, and the yoke of sin forever. Jesus wants our heart or nothing at all, Jesus wants our heart or nothing at all. Jesus is not looking for you to have some of your heart surrendered and then some of your behavior figured out. God is not waiting till your kids are perfect. He's not waiting till your sexuality is flawless. He's not waiting till all your theology is perfectly ironed out. All he is waiting for is you to say, Jesus, you can have my heart. My total allegiance, my surrender, my identity can be rooted in you. That's the gospel. Jesus wants our heart or nothing at all. And here's the problem we all face. Every single day, we walk around, like it or not, land of the free, home of the brave, it still happens with yokes. We all have heavy yokes. See, your yoke may not look like a physical burden, <laughs> and it probably doesn't, but your yoke may be to a sales number, who when you hit it, you're successful, you feel good about yourself, you go home with your head held high, and when you don't, you feel the crushing weight of the yoke. This may be for you a broken relationship or a relationship in general. When it's going really well, you feel light, you feel free. You're like, man, I got no yokes on me. This is amazing. And then it starts to fall apart. Or then you have a very difficult conversation or you find yourself in a counselor's office and you feel the crushing weight of a yoke. This may feel like growing up in a religious environment. Most of us grew up in West Michigan, highly religious area. You you passed like dozens of churches on your way here for most of you. You could grow up in a religious system, and Nick just talked about this. You can grow up in a place where you know all the right things, but if you never really give Jesus your heart and you just focus on the exteriors and sin management, this yoke is crushing, crushing, because this yoke is not the gospel. Jesus says, take my yoke, upon you. Learn the way of life from me. This is why Jesus in this passage lovingly invites his listeners, lovingly invites you to take on his yoke. It's not the removal of a yoke. See, the word here is easy. Take on my yoke. It's easy. Really what's behind this is if you try to put a yoke on on an animal that doesn't fit well, you're not going to get the job done. It's going to be very frustrating, And I'm assuming for the horses who this would have been tied to, it actually fit them very well. Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. It fits you perfectly. Friends, you were designed for Jesus's yoke. This is creation. This is the Imago Dei. You were designed Christ in you with his Holy Spirit in you. This is why I remember sitting in kind of a a mentor of mine's office a few years ago And he said, really, at the end of the day, if you fully understand the good news of Jesus, if you fully understand what we're literally reading right here, he says, you can live every single day with nothing to gain, nothing to lose, and nothing to prove. And friends, the most free people I know live that way. They literally live with the easy yoke of Jesus on them, which really is about our heart. Does God have the allegiance of our heart? If you scan earlier, a passage that we barely ever read is like a couple verses before this in Matthew 11, Matthew 11, verse 20 through 24. You can go back and read this kind of challenging, challenging section that occurs before Jesus gives the passage we just read. And literally it's calling out multiple cities that had heard the message, Tyre and Sidon, Capernaum and Sodom. A, a biblical scholars, even ancients, referred to these three cities as the triangle of sin, right? I've never been to Vegas, but just picture, like, in, in your stereotype of your mind, you're like, that's, that's where this is, like, sin city, that's where it happens. Like, in people's stereotypical mind, that's where, that's where sin happened, this triangle of really broken, really brutal cities. Now, what's fascinating is by this point, and through Jesus's ministry, all three of those cities would have heard the good news of Jesus, all three, they would have heard the the message of the kingdom of God. They would have heard, repent, be baptized. They would have heard about God who not just wants all your exteriors finesse, but but who wants your heart, who wants to transform you from the inside out, who wants to do heart surgery on your life. And yet, even despite hearing that, this, this kind of stereotype continued on. These cities knew the message, but hadn't given Jesus their heart. There was still a yoke on them. Honestly, I look around our community and talking and getting to know so many of you and even living here longer. Like I've I've picked this up in, in our conversations, in and how people talk about church. I picked this up in family fair lines, or when you invite someone to church, their response, see, most of us grew up understanding salvation for our soul, which Jesus talks about, right? Rest or being able to fully surrender our soul as taking his yoke, but most of us grew up understanding that as a mere transaction, right? A mere exchange. So if I give God occasional church attendance, money at Christmas Eve, and I don't swear at my spouse, he will give me (laughs) salvation in return. If I don't sin too badly at school, if I don't cheat on a test, if I don't mouth off to my parents as a child, I will receive salvation For my soul, it's what Scott McKnight, this biblical theologian, talks about as an empty allegiance. It's hollow. It's very transactional, and this seeps in to our daily life. It seeps into our religious life. It can seep into our political world too. Right? You have people on the right who become hyper obsessed with allegiance to atonement or just an obsession with judgment or, or this is not my home, I can't wait till Jesus comes and wipes out all of my personal enemies. It's like a hyper focus on right belief. And on the left, you have the other thing. You have the allegiance to good deeds, justice, social action. It's, making, it's trying to figure out how do we get all the behaviors perfectly ironed out and then Jesus will come. But remember, Jesus wants our heart or nothing at all. He's not after you having a perfect written statement about your belief, and he's definitely not after a perfect written statement about your behavior, some kind of moral code. Jesus wants our heart or nothing at all. From the very first page of Genesis, this was God's design and his desire for his people. Have you ever gotten one of those phone calls that you know is going to change your life? You ever got one of those? Maybe for you as a parent, it was when that child got engaged, or uh, you got a job offer, or you lost somebody. I remember I was in a meeting on a very normal Tuesday, and uh, my mom's an emotional person, but she called me, and and she couldn't talk on the phone. I've shared this story with some of you before, and I just hear her. I literally pick up the phone. I'm like, mom, it's kind of weird that you called me. You know, you know, I'm normally in meetings, right? During this time, she gives me a call, and she's just weeping, crying over and over. It's, like, loud. It's, you could tell she's really struggling. And immediately, I'm the oldest sibling. Immediately, my kind of responsible, oldest child brain kicks in. I said, there's something wrong here. So, I asked her, what's up? Like, what, is everything okay? And she lets me know that, uh, she said, John, about, a, about an hour ago, your dad was rushing to emergency surgery. He had a, a widowmaker heart attack on the highway. And I just wanted to let you know. And so that hit me like it would anybody. But immediately I thought, what a different story. What a different story. So he was able to be rushed into surgery, and an hour later, he's sitting in his hospital bed, breathing and texting me memes. Like <laughs> texting me these weird p- joke pictures. I'm like... What just happened? Like, is this real or are you playing a joke on me? Picture, because he was rushed in, he got there in time, immediate heart surgery, about a third of people make it through the situation he did and he came out on the other side. I'm thankful to God for that. But imagine if my dad, somehow he found his way into an ER. I have no idea how, he doesn't even really remember. He finds his way into the ER and they sit there and they say, Mr. Gorvat, could you give us your date of birth, please? <laughs> and He's like, I'm having a heart attack. Okay, like I something is not right. It's a, what's your address? Can we confirm that your address is still eight two seven seven E seven hundred Upland Indiana? Can we just make sure that? The, could you confirm your insurance card real quick? Do you have that on you by any chance? Like, okay, perfect. We did all that. We're gonna take you to triage, and we're gonna give you some Tums. I know you're gonna love the flavor. <laughs> like they're just good. They taste great. Uh, it's going to solve the heartburn that you probably are dealing with right now. He'd go into triage, maybe take the Tums. And there's a chance that my dad would feel marginally better. There's a chance. There's a chance that he would feel okay. If the doctor was really nice and was able to crack a lot of jokes, and my dad walks out of there and calls my mom and says, hey, no need to rush down to the hospital. It was just some heartburn. I'll get it figured out. There is like a 99.9% chance my dad probably would have died in the parking lot. My dad did not need exterior's address. He needed heart surgery immediately. Do You see where I'm going with this? Some of you already got it. This is the message of Jesus. This is the difference between the yoke of what the Pharisees were providing, what our world will provide, and what Jesus provides. Friends, this is the gospel. Pastor John Ortberg says it this way. Most people are not in danger of denying their faith, but living a shallow version of it. Let me say that one more time. Most people are not in danger of denying their faith and just writing Jesus off. They're in danger of living a shallow, hollow, almost there version of it. That this is, again, this is the easy yoke for, versus the yoke that maybe you grew up with or the yoke that you still have on. See, Jesus is not saying, if you want to experience true forgiveness, if you want to experience salvation from your sin and rest for your soul, the way you do it is not add 15 to 20 more yokes on your life of moral perfection and behavior and sin management. Friends, you have to be willing to let Jesus do heart surgery. You have to be willing to say that sin has created brokenness in me and the only way to to resolve that, the only way to get back to my original design and to step into the fullness of the person God has created me to be is by surrendering my heart to him. At the end of the day, that, that exact message is why we would do things like two services. It's why we did things like move into this place. It's why after 15 years, we're still just as passionate as that initial group of people who planted this place about seeing zero lives unchanged by Jesus Christ, because we know he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life for our world. And that's true for me, and that's definitely true for our future. Two quick things, and maybe the Spirit will speak through this to you. Maybe you need to sit with it. If you're thinking about how to actually apply this, man, you're talking about big stuff, The series has been about big things, creation and sin. Like, how how do I make this real for me? Two quick things that come to mind. I was trying to reflect on this earlier. The first would be for some of us, it is being able to recognize that the pace that we're living is unsustainable. Like being busy is not a badge of honor. It actually can be a sign that you are distracted. You are missing. You are prioritizing the wrong thing. And so maybe for you, this, this week is getting real about your pace. Are you slowed down enough to love the people right in front of you? Are you slowed down enough to let God orient your calendar? Are you slowed down enough to listen to what Jesus has to say to you? Are you slowed down enough to realize, you know what, that is true. I am a child of God and that changes everything. Are you slowed down enough? Are you, are you living at a pace that you know five years from now will ruin you? and will ruin your marriage and will ruin your family and will ruin your closest relationships because you're trying to wear a yoke that you were never designed to carry. The second would be, some of you need to be able to name and lay down the heavy yoke you're wearing. Some of you already know what it is. Some of it, it is image. It is curating the way you look and walking into a room and making sure you look the best and your body looks better than that girl or that guy. You seem to be able to lay that down, to name it and to lay it aside. For some of you, it's a relationship that is weighing on you. It's heavy. It's broken. You know it is. Then you need to be able to lay it down. For some of you, it may be the crushing weight of religious expectation, and you need to be able to say, God, I am taking. I'm going to name this yoke. I'm going to take it off because you say your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And in that yoke that fits me perfectly. I will find rest. I will find a pace that is sustainable. For you, maybe it's counseling. Maybe it's quitting the habit. Maybe it's apologizing. Maybe it's rearranging some things this week in order to, to do this work of letting God into your heart. What I wanna do is pray for you and then give you some time because often it's probably easy to rush out and to move on, but I wanna give us some space to do this, to actually wrestle through this and, and to process what the, the Spirit may be saying to you So Father, we just come before you and uh, me first, God, I just open my heart to you again. And I'm asking God that the the yokes that I've tried to put on, even this week, that you'd help me to to take them off and, and to replace it with your easy yoke that fits me perfectly, that will provide rest and actually helps me to learn, God, your gentleness and your humility. Gotta pray for my friends, my family here, that you would open their heart to you, that, that for all of us, we would not live reserved or closed off or waiting till we have finessed and perfected ourselves to bring our whole self to you, but that you'd welcome us, Jesus, and we would sense it just as we are. We need you. We're horrible at running our own lives. And we're asking God, would you make us dependent built and and renew our foundation on you and your love for us. We surrender it all and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The band's going to play for a little bit before we sing. I invite you just to sit right where you are. They'll invite you to stand and we're going to sing this out together, but just take some time. Don't rush, don't move past, but to be able to rest in what God wants to say, and then we're going to worship him together.